My name is Lindy Wilmot and I, with Professor Ben White, uh, direct the Australian Centre of Health Law Research, which is based in the Faculty of Law here at QUT. Um, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to the fourth seminar in this seminar series, which is entitled uh, it's not there. It's entitled Liability and Innovation, Unpacking Key Connections. These seminars, this seminar series is funded by a research grant from the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK. And the goal of this um, grant and the seminar series is to bring together uh, medical and legal academics from universities in Australia and in the UK. So particular welcome to our colleagues from um, Keele University and uh, Durham University in the UK. So the issues that we'll be discussing here today are really, really important ones, of course, around the regulation of medical practice and medical malpractice and the important balancing of uh, innovation, important innovations, but as well patient safety and, and compensation, of course, to patients who are injured as a result of innovation. As we can see from the people who are here today, these discussions are of interest to a really broad range of people from a wide variety of disciplines and backgrounds. Obviously lawyers, uh, also clinicians, health professionals, um, ethicists, medical health lawyers, uh, regulators, government, um, and of course health consumers as well. And Tina tells me that we have and, and through attendance. So we're thrilled uh, and that's a credit to the organisation of, of this seminar. Um, the program has, uh, as you can see, delighted to have people from universities in UK and also different universities around Australia from a range of backgrounds. So um, that's great and thank you all very much for being here today. The Health Law Research Centre here at QUT comprises 21 academics. The vast majority of those are health lawyers and we have three programs within our centre. One is the end of life program which looks at issues around withholding, withdrawing, life sustaining medical treatment, uh, futile treatment, doctrinal double effect, euthanasia. Uh, we have a program called children's health and the beginning of life looking at important issues like um, reporting child sexual abuse and neglect. Uh, looking at abortion and the long-standing issue about reforming abortion law in So we're going to have him by a telelink. Um, so Professor Richardson has been involved in a number of the third program which is a much broader program around regulation and health governance. So issues such as uh, global health, um, negligence, consent and of course um, what the topic is here today, the regulation of emerging technologies and, and innovations. Um, what we do in the centre is, I'm sure, what all academics do all around the world. We not only try to publish high quality research and disseminate that in the usual academic ways, but we also want to translate our research so that it does make a difference and improve outcomes. Um, and an example of um, doing just that is this seminar series and this seminar today. So getting a whole group of people together, a variety of different stakeholders who have different perspectives, different expertise, bringing, bringing people together to
to discuss these issues and hopefully generate new knowledge and, and, and start to talk about solutions to these really um, complex problems. So thanks again for coming today. I hope it's a productive one and I hope it's an enjoyable day. And my last duty is to hand you over to Associate Professor Tina Coburn to kick off the proceedings. Good morning everyone and thank you for attending today. Thank you Lindy for your kind introduction and thank you to the Centre for hosting the seminar. Previously all patients would wish to join a trial if they were suitable. Previous the seminar series are to look at the relationships between liability, disciplinary proceedings, defensive medicine and the effect on innovation. We're focusing particularly on regenerative medicine and medical products because um, the stakes are particularly high in terms of decreased innovation and um, risks to patients. Um, the premise, I guess, on which we've since that fear of tort liability, including medical negligence claims, and fear of disciplinary action leads to defensive medicine, that is treatment that's not um, aimed at promoting optimal care but treatment that's aimed at reducing liability. However, the findings in the literature on this area are quite inconclusive. So at the same time, tort law's reliance in common law jurisdictions certainly on custom as the de facto standard, the de facto defence to um, negligence claims. In Australia, we have the peer professional opinion standard is accused of this custom, the standard of customs, accused of being a disincentive to medical innovation because, of course, medical innovation is something which is outside the standard practice. And um, there's a societal interest, of course, in encouraging responsible innovation, rewarding innovation, and balancing this against the need to protect uh, patients and compensate them if things go wrong. So in this seminar series, we're aiming to look at a range of different questions across the six seminars. Things like the extent to which the combined effect of tort liability and disciplinary proceedings is a disincentive to um, innovation in the extent to which it creates defensive medicine. The, relation, the relative contribution of changes to the tests which determine liability and negligence and whether um, the law reform proposals in the UK, we saw um, the Medical Innovation Bill, which um, didn't progress, but these were aimed at trying to reduce liability and promote innovation. We're also looking at whether law reform is warranted um, in order to encourage innovation, um, but how we at the same time balance patient safety and protecting patients' interests and ensuring adequate compensation. We're looking at, the, in the very last seminar, we're looking at the relationship between research and innovation and the justification, if there is one, for different regulatory frameworks in both contexts and whether regulation of research unduly stifles innovation. So in this seminar, we're looking at the effect of disciplinary proceedings. Again, it's been suggested that clinicians are wary, more wary, of disciplinary proceedings than they are of medical negligence claims. But most of the um, research in this area has focused on um, uh, tort liability rather than disciplinary proceedings. So today what we're hoping to do is start to fill the gap in research in this area and look at the um, extent to which disciplinary proceedings might have an impact 
on innovation. And as Lindy said, we're just thrilled to have so many of you from so um, diverse backgrounds and with such great expertise to um, lead the discussions and contribute to, this, to the discussions today. Um, our law student, Catherine Boski, is tweeting today, so hashtag um, liability innovation if you wanted to join the conversation. And um, we're going to start the day with a round, panel, a round table discussion with our experts here, but led um, by Philip Bates. I'll just introduce Philip and then hand over to him. So Philip practices as a full-time barrister in Sydney. He's a conjoint professor ethics and health law school of medicine and public health at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales. He's appeared as counsel in just about every most um, recent leading high court decision in medical negligence cases such as Bailey and New South Wales Medical Defence Union about deep sleep therapy and indemnity insurance, Waller and James in 2006, the wrongful life case, Wallace and Cam in 2013, the duty to warn, um, the risk and causation <coughs> case. He's the foundation consultant editor for two CCH loose leaf services, Australian Professional Liability Medical and the Australian Health and Medical, Lib Medical Law Reporter. We're lucky to have um, Philip here today and he's going to lead the round table. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, uh, Tina and Lindy, for the invitation to be here. Um, I haven't been to this campus before, but I really felt quite relaxed walking along those beautiful. Uh, gardens as I was coming in here. And um, I'm, the way we're organising this first session, we're trying to get an interaction at two different levels. First of all, we have a panel, and I'm going to introduce you to those people very shortly. But we want to try and get interaction at two levels. First of all, the panellists will interact with each other, but also we want an interaction from you with the panellists. So we're operating at those two different levels. And the way we're trying to organise this session is that we have a series of themes or themes, and I'll be asking the different panellists to lead off the discussions of those themes and other panellists to comment, and then we'll be asking for each of you to contribute or ask questions or comments. In order to try and promote a conversation, I've, I've asked both the panellists and also yourselves to try and keep short sort of contributions to try and get things going. Later this afternoon, the sessions are more traditional presentations and questions. Today is meant to be a sort of a conversation. And um, the conversation is around a theme. And of representation across the whole stakeholder group today, uh, both on the panel. And regulation. Let me introduce our, our key panellists if I don't disconnect myself or, in, or somehow. Yeah, yeah. Firstly, eminently qualified people, enormous experience, a uh, variety of disciplines. Back David Morgan at the end and I, we realised something very important as we were having a cup of tea before we started. What David and I realised we had in common is we both looked younger in real life than our photos. Tina did ask me to spend a minute or two uh, telling you about our centre. A distinguished orthopaedic surgeon, um, he was ducks of this and he was on various committees and colleges. He's a good man because a lot of orthopedic surgeons just want to cut things and put things in bodies and but David's taken a broader view of his career and he's apart from being a distinguished orthopedic surgeon he also 
has contributed to the broader issues of leadership and contribution. So we really appreciate David being here. And uh, although when we write him as Dr. David Morgan, he's given me permission to call him David today for today's purposes. Next to David, we've got Queensland, um, issues like surrogacy, uh, gender dysphoria, and we have um, a lady who over 30 years has had experience of living with chronic kidney disease, and and uh, but she's been constructive and has tried to um, use her experiences as a way of really giving feedback to the health system. She's a member of. Queensland Collaboratives, and she's. A, we really appreciate that you are here today, Helen. Uh, next to I've got uh, Claire Bassenwaite and Catherine Philp, who are both involved in different aspects of medical legal defence. Catherine works in house basically in a van, which is sorry, not, I mean, sorry, Claire works in house um, at a van, which is one of the main medical indemnity insurers. But in that role, she's done a lot with both discipline and with civil matters and with coronial and with complaints. And uh, Catherine is working, again, in a sort of medical defence role, but as an internet law firm, Cox. I tell you, they're very hard firm, they're very fight, they fight fiercely. I know from her mates down in Sydney, like uh, Don Munro and others, that they're, a very, they're, they're always a tough fight. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I came second against them in Wallace and Cam, so there you are. <laughs> Anyway, um, but coming second is still better than coming third. From the law case, you either come first or second. So anyway, and then um, Eleanor Milligan, Professor Eleanor Milligan who, at Griffith University. Interesting background. Um, uh, Helen uh, coordinates at Griffith the, what's called the discipline lead in ethics and professional responsibility. Um, we have a similar concept at Newcastle Medical School. Discipline leads are very important. Um, this is the fourth seminar in our um, seminar series, um, Liability and Innovation, Unpacking Key um, Connections. And the objectives of the... Themes like ethics and professional responsibility don't get lost in the silo of individual subjects. And uh, she's got an interesting background, um, but she's now been teaching... Her PhD actually is in ethics and she gravitated that through humanities. So, um, thank you very much, Eleanor. So there, that's our panel. Now, in terms of uh, leading off, started this work is that physicians largely believe across different jurisdictions um, is, is, is dealing with um, what I'll call the regulatory framework um, and, and Tina and her opening remarks has already explained there's a distinction between the sort of civil liability system, the tort system and the sort of disciplinary system. So we need to have some framework and so I'm asking, I'd, I'd ask uh, Catherine to lead off a bit of about that and then maybe Claire to add some other comments and then any other panels as well and then we'll sort of invite some feedback from ourselves. So Catherine, over to you. Uh, now, do I need to use this? I need to use it. Hello. Oh yes, it's working. Good. Okay. Uh, well, good morning everybody and thank you very much for having me here today. I've been asked to just give a very, very short everything you ever wanted to know about the regulatory system in Queensland but were too afraid to ask summary. Um, so, starting off in the dim dark ages, uh, Australia, as the lawyers in the room know, is a commonwealth of states. So, we all had separate states to begin with. Queensland uh, separated from New South Wales in 1859, 158 years ago, and each state uh, eventually established their own medical boards to regulate doctors and various other professional boards as well for other health practitioners, but I will concentrate on doctors. 
Now, after a while, obviously, this became unworkable, uh, there was a lot of mobility, you may have situations where somebody would be living in northern New South Wales and practice in Queensland, or indeed practice both in northern New South Wales and Queensland, but was subject to two different boards with respect to disciplinary matters. Uh, you would have people, you'd have doctors who might be disciplined in Queensland and then simply move interstate and, and move on um, as uh, their activities caught up with them. So COAG got together. Uh, and made a very good decision, I think. And uh, from um, in Queensland, from 1 January 2010, uh, each uh, we introduced the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law Act, or the National Law. It was adopted by the remaining states from 1 July 2010. So up until midnight, 30 June 2010, the state boards existed on the stroke of midnight. They ceased to exist, and one second past midnight, the Medical Board of Australia came into existence. So we now have one medical board for all health all um, medical practitioners in Australia. APRA is the secretariat for the national boards, APRA being the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, and it provides secretarial services for the 14 national boards. I can't rattle off all 14, but it includes medical practitioners, doctors, the Nursing and Midwifery Board, uh, dentists, um, our physiotherapists, psychologists and various others. It's all in the national law. So this went along for a while. Then in 2013, there was a bit of a brouhaha, for want of a better term, that's technical, um, uh, from a political point of view, and the then Health Minister introduced the Office of the Health Ombudsman in Queensland. That legislation was introduced in August 2013, and from 1 July 2014, the Queensland Office of the Health Ombudsman was established and commenced. And from that point on, Queensland became what is called a co-regulatory jurisdiction. So the practicalities are, in Queensland, the Office of the Health Ombudsman receives complaints to do with any health service. Now, a health service is defined as, broadly, a service that is or purports to be a service for maintaining, improving, restoring or managing people's health and well-being. We were chatting here before. That certainly covers our respective hairdressers um, and uh, <laughs> beauticians. And the health ombudsman has stated quite clearly that he has a very broad uh, view about his jurisdiction and he is open to entertaining complaints uh, far, far and wide. Certainly to date, he has um, imposed what's called an immediate action, immediate registration action or a prohibition order on people such as uh, masseuses, social workers, people who are not subject to the uh, national law, the 14 professions that are regulated under the national law. So that's basically how we, um, how we roll in Queensland. So far as the OHO's jurisdiction is concerned, the OHO can refer matters for regulated health practitioners uh, onto the respective national boards. But he, because it is a man, is precluded from doing so um, because he must maintain matter, retain matters that involve professional misconduct as defined under the national law. He, his legislation adopts the same definitions as national law or another ground exists for the suspension or cancellation of a practitioner's registration. So the whole idea is that the OHO retains the more serious matters, 
Once he determines that it's not within, it doesn't reach that benchmark, he can and does refer matters back to the national boards or other agencies. There are various steps that he can take and I won't go into that under the Act. So uh, what is professional misconduct? The definition is set out in legislation, it's in the national law. I've actually born, bought clean copies of the definitions because I'm scarpering uh, as soon as this is over. Uh, but definition, the professional misconduct includes... The, uh, and the theme really is different aspects of this relationship between innovation... ...substantially below the standard reasonably expected of a health practitioner of equivalent training or experience. So you've got similar language to that used for claims for medical negligence. Um, now you've got, uh, you've got uh, pictures and biographies... And ...substantially below the standard. It's not just enough that you've got something wrong and it may be negligent, it has to be really bad. Um, other things that come within professional misconduct... <laughs> <laughs> but David is... A and then of course there's the catch-all um, whether or not you've indulged in conduct, uh, be it in connection with your practice or otherwise, that is not uh, consistent with the, practice, the practitioner being a fit and proper person. So there, there's that extra professional level as well. Now unprofessional conduct is the next one down in the hierarchy of uh, professional conduct. And that is basically conduct of a... Um, th th Helen Mees, who's uh, a consumer representative, who's, and Helen is... ...substantially below, then you've got unprofessional conduct, which is of a lesser standard. And in that definition, there are a number of examples given. I won't rattle through them all because I'll send you to sleep. But it includes things such as breaching the national law, breaching an undertaking, breaching a condition of your registration, um, and, and I'm not sure people have, uh, are aware of this, um, offering to give a person a benefit or reward in return for that person referring patients to you, or accepting a benefit or, or, or reward for referring patients to other health practitioners. Uh, so there are various, it, it's the only definition that gives specific examples of what might arise, what might lead to unprofessional um, conduct. And then the next one, uh, the um, least um, serious breach, for want of a better term, is unsatisfactory performance. And the definition for that is that it means the skill, knowledge or judgement is below the standard reasonably expected of a health practitioner. And that's the one that brings in your garden variety negligence actions and you might have the intersecting um, areas of play. The other thing that's interesting in these definitions is that unprofessional conduct refers to a standard which might reasonably be expected of the health practitioner by the public or the practitioner's professional peers. The other two definitions don't refer to um, the public or peers, which I noticed when I was going through this this morning. I thought that was a bit of a dichotomy. It was quite interesting. Okay, um, so basically you've got two types of forensic processes. You've got your civil claims and you've got your disciplinary claims. They're important person. They, medical school, you have lots of subjects and there are certain themes. A practical point of view is that the civil claims are driven by the parties and until you walk into the... So you can get lost, a silo effect, you know, and so the discipline is trying to ensure that the important... ...not a trial, you ask somebody else to make a decision for you if you can't resolve it yourselves. With disciplinary actions, once a complaint is made, it's more or less out of the complainant's hands and the regulator takes over and the regulator will drive the process. And you can't settle a disciplinary action. So the number of times I've fielded inquiries, 
The first section of this talk, or this roundtable, I should call it. All right. Um, and the only other thing I want to say is that there's generally three, roughly three areas uh, that the regulators are concerned with, and that is performance, and that's to do with how you do your job and the standard that you, um, uh, you reach, your conduct, um, and that, of course, the classic example of that is the boundary violations, and then there's health, and that's to do with practitioners who are impaired, either physically or as a result of mental health issues. So that's it. Thank you very much for that very helpful overview. Uh, Claire, would you like to add anything to that um, at this stage? Uh, that was a very thorough summary that Catherine's done. The only other thing that I would add to that is that disciplinary proceedings can come about by an own motion by um, the OHO or by the medical board. So it doesn't necessarily have to come about by someone making a complaint. Most of them do, but we are seeing a current trend for own motion matters at the moment. Thank you. Now, Helen, um, from your perspective, I mean, you obviously hear people as ordinary patients telling you things and you've heard this. What, can you, what's your sort of take on what I call the consumer perspective to all this? It's interesting because we're probably not terribly bothered about the definitions and the law. And, and I think the priority for a consumer is that to have agreed to the treatment, they've trusted the practitioner and they see it as a breach in trust. I relied on you and you let me down. And so I guess it's interesting when you dis discuss the fact that disciplinary actions can't be withdrawn. And, you know, th that's the sort of thing that I think would worry a consumer and prevent them from taking it further. Because I think when consumers have a problem, they don't actually want to go to a complaint as their first level. They want to talk about it. They want to understand, but they also want to be respected and have their point of view heard. Yeah. And I'm not sure where that fits into the process at the moment. Mm. I'll come to you in a moment, Eleanor, but David, what's your perspective as a person who no doubt over the years has had views about this disciplinary process and complaints and particularly... Philip, I thought for a moment you were going to say I've had complaints made against no, me. No, yeah, no, 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 no. My little heart went no, flat. No, no, no. <laughs> I wasn't going there, David. I'm not going there. Uh, Catherine and Claire have outlined it perfectly. To take it one step further, it is so often the case that fairness and equity are seen to be lacking. It's a very unwieldy process that the ladies have described. Complainants often feel that they're not heard adequately and practitioners who are complained about often feel as though they've been unfairly dealt with. It's usually because of delays in the investigative process, lack of transparency, and the emotional load carried by both groups. Now, I'm not sitting here with a solution to that significant problem, but it really does exist, and it does need to be addressed at some stage. Thank you. All right, now, Eleanor, you're, you're training medical students. <coughs> what do you try and teach them in order to prepare them for the world of regulation to come in to try and, I suppose, improve things for the future. What's your, can you tell us that? Yep. So, um, so I would say thank you to Catherine and Claire for outlining the complexities of it. But I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the very clear fundamental purpose of all of this, and that is the protection of the public. That's the foundational stone on which all of this is based. And even although there have been lots of changes in the law, as Catherine outlined, the, the reason that we have this legislation is the same and has always been the protection of the public. And I guess underlying that is a recognition that when people are ill or unwell, they're vulnerable and there's a power imbalance um, that exists between the doctor and patient. 
the doctor holds the knowledge, the doctor mostly holds the power. So this legislation is really about making sure that patients can trust their doctors to use this power in the best interest of the patient and not for you know, unreasonable financial gain or for scientific curiosity, which is where this conversation is heading. Mm. So I would encourage my students to go back to the first principle. Why is this here? It's for protection of the public because there's a power imbalance. Right, thank you. Now, just before inviting contribution on this aspect from the floor, do you teach anything or try and teach students about this idea that's been picked up so far of so-called standard treatment, variations from standard treatment? What, what, what's taught to students looking forward about innovations, departures, those things? Um, so I guess it would be part of all medical curriculums for, for um, student doctors to be taught about this regulatory environment. They would be taught about their um, treatment. Clinical trials, including the first trial of stem cells to treat fracture non-union. to Professor Richardson for a minute before we start the slides. Some of which I think could veer off into that um, innovative space. Um, and they would basically be taught to be aware of the, the standard to which their advice would be held, which would be the standard of the medical professional profession as a whole. Right. right. Now we'd like to give you an opportunity to contribute or ask questions. In America, in North America. Ask a follow-up question, give an experience. Yes, please, this lady here. Hurry, we're just going to get you a microphone. You might just start again. Sorry. Thank you. I'm Lisa Pritchard. I'm talking the, to the microphone. Exec Director for the Assessment and Resolution Division at the Office of the Health Ombudsman. Um, it was a really good summary of the COREG framework that we have now. Good, good to, uh, to say that. Thank you. Um, and thank you to the, the panel. Some really interesting perspectives. I just wanted to add a second or a further perspective, um, partly in response to Helen and the consumer's uh, point of view. Um, Health Ombudsman does deal with disciplinary proceedings, obviously, but we also have um, dispute resolution functions. We have conciliation teams. So when somebody brings a complaint to the Office of the Health Ombudsman, we're not... Over time, my procedure gradually changes. I do try to standardise each step, as this makes the operation more efficient, and it makes it better for my trainee... ...assist the consumer to find some resolution to their complaint. It might not be a complaint that is that level of seriousness that warrants discipline. Um, we sometimes hear these complaints referred to as trivial by some practitioners. Um, we recognise that while complaint might seem trivial to a practitioner, it isn't necessarily trivial to the patient or the consumer. And we look to try and find a balance and to assist them to find some resolution wherever they can. And that's a voluntary process, voluntary for the consumer and for the practitioner. But we do look to try and rebuild some relationships, um, encourage some reflection on practice, encourage some changes in process if we can. So we look for the patient safety perspective to be um, looked at, but also to make sure that there is some respect to the, the consumer and their power imbalance in the relationship. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, this lady at the front. We need that microphone. Thank you. Hi, I'm Megan, and I'll be speaking shortly. But I just wanted to go back to the point around peer, peer standards and who sets those, particularly in emerging technologies. Well, whoever professes to be an expert in the area. <laughs> But I think that, that their lies the rub. Yeah, and their lies the rub. You're right. 
Yes. Sorry, there's a microphone there. Thank you, President. Sorry. Um, if you have a proposed pr procedure that's gone through uh, the Research Ethics Committee of a, a hospital or health organisation, do you find that that affects liability if a claim is made? Now, this is a premium. The fact that you've not got somebody who's out there and gone, hey, everybody does this procedure this way, but I'm going to do it completely differently and maybe not have that checks and balances in place to make sure that I am doing it appropriately in a considered way and that the patient is informed about the fact that this is a different way of doing this. When you've got something that's gone through ethics committees and things like that, it's a very um, rigorous process to get that approved generally. There's oversight in terms of, you know, making sure topic before we move on to the next topic. Anyone would like to respond to anything that's been said? Because you've got more people overseeing it. So I don't think it necessarily um, will change liability in, in a strict legal sense, but the chance of something, um, a, a big piece being missed is much less because you've got more people overseeing it than just an individual doctor who says, I've done X, Y, Z this way. I'm going to do this procedure that way. And I, I, would, I would add to that that through the course of research ethics review, people would look at what's the level of risk. So some innovative things are very low risk and some innovative things are high risk. And the committee would obviously look at that. And any approval would be structured around managing the level of risk. And, and that would include um, how the research team are making sure that that patient is not being denied standard or known beneficial treatment. Um, to get this innovative thing that we don't know whether it's beneficial or not. And there would also be a very rigorous um, participant information process um, and a consent process in theory. One of the things that's emerging so far from this discussion, which is very important, is that we have, a language, we have language issues here, like we have the language that Catherine's referred to about substantial departures from things. We have languages such as non-standard treatment, we have languages such as innovation. Just at this point, I want to ask Professor Wendy Rogers to just make a brief two-minute comment here on her aspect. You, you we look at um, level of seriousness, whether there is the perspective. Um, six things, maybe just give a two-minute pricey. I know you're talking this afternoon, but just I might have helped the discussion now and just gave yeah. a two-minute pricey. Yeah, look, look, thanks. Yes, I've done work with a team at, um, based at Macquarie University on different prospect of the need for disciplinary proceedings, we also look at how we can um, an innovation as a, uh, you know, a significant or important departure from normal practice or uh, something that would have a lot of risk or something that might make a lot of money. Um, there's lots of different definitions and none of them were implementable. And um, as we'll slide later today, the, national, the current version of the national statement leaves um, the regulation of innovation largely up to the clinician's own judgment. So if a clinician says this is innovation, not research, then it doesn't even go near an ethics committee. Um, now, autologous chondrocyte implantation is a very good technique for... And also work interviewing surgeons, um, health managers and nurse practitioners in um, the Sydney Hospital to try and come up with a definition of surgical innovation that would then be able to be used for people to know whether or not what they were doing was an innovation, um, and if so, then whether it would need support to make it safer for the patient. Um, we've, we've found that um, 
newness had five aspects, five different aspects. So first of all, something could be completely new, first in the world, first uterus transplant, you know, when they do the first head transplant, that'll be the first in the world. And that's clearly innovative. Um, it could be, lots of surgeons said that they were innovating when they did something for the first time. So it might have been done somewhere else, but the first time they did, you know, so I was the innovator, I brought this to X hospital or I brought this to, you know, Queensland. Um, some people said it was innovation if it was the first time in their hospital. And you might think those two aren't real innovations per se, but they raise significant safety issues if the surgeon's never done it before or the team's never done it before. So we kept those in our definition. Um, and then there was a whole um, lot of things about where you can change things and you don't really know what the consequences it can be when you start using instruments in different ways. So the laparoscope was the classic example. That was a gynaecological instrument for many years and then a general surgeon had the bright idea of taking out the gallbladder with it. It's now a standard procedure for taking out the gallbladder, but the first lot of patients that went through didn't do very well at all. There was a lot of bile duct injuries um, and a lot of morbidity associated with it. So when you have a new instrument, an instrument used in a different way, and now we see the robots roaming around the body and being used for all sorts of things, um, so that's another way that things can be new when you've got an established technology but it's in a new anatomical location or in a new patient cohort or used for um, patient, a different morbidity or different comorbidities. So we tried to bring all those things together in a simple checklist that surgeons might be willing to answer. And we have two questions in the checklist. Uh, or, yeah, two main questions. So one is, has this procedure ever been performed before by this surgeon? So she, he or she should be able to say yes or no to that. In this hospital, yes or no. So those, that, that first question is fairly categorical. And the second question is, has this, um, has this you know, um, piece of equipment or operation or procedure been used um, for this indication in this patient cohort, so we're looking at sex and age, because if you have things used in paediatric patients that were only previously used in adults, that can be problematic. And has it been used in patients with this indication with this set of comorbidities? So that's the kind of the basic chest list, and behind that there are some questions about trying to work out what's a, um, a significant degree of change and so forth, and that, that gets into some detail we don't need to work with. And we're trying to pilot that at the moment, but this is... It's taken nine months to get ethics approval to do this trial of the checklist, so we're not quite off the ground yet. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. Wendy, uh, David, do you want to comment on that on this, from a surgical point of view? Yeah. Um, do I need the microphone? That was a, a marvellous uh, description of what you're doing, and it's a fantastic thing that you do. So as an orthopaedic surgeon, it's tempting for me to talk about orthopaedic surgery, so I won't. I'll talk about, say, cardiac surgery. Let's talk about a thing called TAVI, T-A-V-I. Have you ever heard of it? It's trans-arterial valve insertion. So hitherto, cardiac surgeons would open up the chest, so crack the sternum, rip it apart, get into the chest, into the heart, make a cut, take the old valve out, put a new valve in, sew it up and close the chest with some wire, and you can imagine the morbidity associated with that. Well, in the last four or five years, it's now possible to insert the valve up through the femoral artery. So a two centimetre nick in the groin, pass it up through the artery, up into the heart, and position the new valve in that position, all through the artery. Now, this is truly innovative, isn't it? Really is. It can also be very expensive and can have significant morbidity associated with it. So MSAC, you've heard of MSAC, Medicare Services Advisory Committee, have reviewed the whole project. TGA, Therapeutic Goods Administration, a regulator, they've also approved the device, so it's allowed to be imported. PLAC, PLAC, that's Prosthesis Listing Advisory Committee, gets involved to see if the private health insurers, and therefore us, the taxpayers, 
or the private insured should pay for it. So you can see how the regulatory system then links with the surgeon and with the innovation. And what's happened is that the MSAC has said it can be used, but only in the so-called hostile chest. Don't you like that term? A hostile chest is a chest that's been opened many times before, and getting in there, opening it up may be extremely dangerous, so it's probably better to go up through a virgin femoral artery. And Plaque is saying that we'll pay for it, provided it's only done in patients that are otherwise on death's door. In other words, if they could have the cheaper operation, having their chest cracked open, then that's what will happen. So here we have three regulators, three separate regulators, who really should have a Venn diagram overlap that's enormous, but they don't, are all taking a piece of this issue, and the surgeon is almost sidelined. So if the stuff does hit the fan and there is a major problem, it's the regulators that will probably wear it rather than the surgeon. So it's interesting that disciplinary proceedings and medical negligence almost never feature on the brain in the front of the mind of the surgeon when these innovations are being tried. Well, thank you. Now, I appreciate it. Now, we're going to move to the next section, um, which is sort of related but following on. The next sort of group of ideas we want to talk about, um, which has been hinted at, but we're now going to deal with more directly, is I may have a fear. Um, I mean, the classic example, um, which every medical law teacher knows, is that we, we, there's this myth, for, I think it's still a myth, but if you, if you treat, if you, if you, that doctors who stop at road accidents to provide so-called great figures and maybe build, but I've never even become aware of any actual example that this is terrible fear. So we have perceptions which may influence behaviour and reality. So that's the sort of broad area we're now going to be exploring, perceptions versus reality, in relation to this idea of discipline receives in. Um, I think it, it certainly adds weight to ourselves. Um, we've already talked a bit about these problems of language. Um, and, uh, and coding. Now, um, and, and I think if we're talking about discipline procedure, we've already heard from, from our panel that, in fact, and from indeed the help, the Ombudsman's comment, that people may complain. Now, just, I've got the annual report out from the New South Wales Healthcare Complaints Commission, which is probably the most comprehensive set of data because they've been going the longest. Or that consent from the, the innovation side of things is really understood and obtained. I'll just make a few quick points before we lead in on this distinction between realities and perceptions. In that calendar, in that calendar year, or that more like a financial year I suppose, but in that 12 month financial year, there were nearly 12,000 complaints received by the Commission in all categories, including those things that might be trivial right up to those that might be really serious. That's close to 12,000. Um, and then, but if you try and break that down, we can't really tell because of the way things are coded what really might be so-called innovative treatment. For example, nearly half of that cohort, or 5,000, were for treatment, but we don't know whether that's because the treatment was standard treatment or non-standard treatment. Again, another nearly 2,000 complaints for so-called professional conduct issues, but we don't know whether that's really standard things, non-standard things. There were nearly a thousand complaints for medication type issues. Was that a, an innovative medicine or not? The point really is, is that we can go through these, these figures and we can't really tell from the figures what is really innovative or what's not. Indeed, Wendy's trying to get approval for some definitions, which if she gets the approval, she can run the, the pilot test, I think it is. So maybe some years down the track, we might get these in. But I just want to make a couple of brief points. Of those 12,000 close to complaints, um, the only thing that is directly apparently so-called 
did a very interesting study where you looked at how innovation is thought of, and I think it came with a checklist of cohort of 12,000, which we call experimentation. Whatever that really means, I don't know. Experimental treatment actually was the phrase. So I'm not quite sure what that means. And experiment sounds a nasty word, and innovation sounds a good word. We need to talk about those issues as well. But the other point I want Finding surgical innovation, because we found when we we'd started working in that area that the surgeons themselves defined... In New South Wales in that year, but in the same year, of, of those... Of, I know there's a field in it, the ones that actually got to some sort of tribunal hearing, like some, a court or a tribunal, was roughly 100 complaints all up. So um, you can see that... Uh, I mean, 100 is a very small proportion of 12,000, but there's a filtering effect, clearly... Um, the doctor who has to answer a so-called trivial complaint. So there's, there's, we thought there was a big gap there, so we um, did sort of philosophical analytic work. We have to look at the whole disciplinary system, really from the complaints onwards, to put this into some perspective. So I just wanted to introduce that aspect. And, um, and in terms of our panel, I'd like actually Helen to perhaps start off on this aspect, Helen, because you're obviously dealing with consumers and things. What, what's your, your, your take on this idea of perceptions versus fears and things and realities about innovative treatments and things of that sort? That's sort of really interesting. And, and one of the things that I actually think about is that innovative treatment you won't find from a doctor. That's, I think, a perception of consumers, that you go to a doctor for conventional treatment and if you want something different, you'll go to an alternative practitioner. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that you actually will have consumers that will not tell their regular doctor that they're also having alternative treatments, which is far more of a concern to me. So I suspect that the perceptions are actually impacting how a consumer accesses health care and what they communicate to all of their health practitioners. Are they telling their GP that actually they've been going to a chiropractor every week for the last six weeks and maybe their sore neck is connected to that? Don't know. It's interesting. Mm. Mm. David, what's your view about perceptions and realities in this area? Uh, well, they are different things, different phenomena. It's interesting you pulled out the data from New South Wales. You know, there's 110,000 doctors in Australia and every year 3% are complained about. Now of the 3%, 60%, that's two of the three, are no further action. Of the 1% that's left, about 50% get a caution, nothing else. So in other words, we're really talking about a very, very small proportion of a profession that comes before a disciplinary board. And of those, a minuscule number are there because of innovation. So innovation and disciplinary matters are almost mutually exclusive. I mean, they're not, obviously, by definition, but it's a very rare bird to have both together. That's not true, of course, for medical negligence. That is a different issue. Everybody remembers Johnson & Johnson and Depew with the hip replacement, metal on metal, and all these big tumours in people's hips, and it's still going on, of course. Uh, the doctors uh, have not yet been sued, but I think they will be. One of my colleagues were featured on Four Corners two or three years ago. Uh, every doctor knows it's not good to be on Four Corners. It's not where you want to be. And he may well have trouble, but the rest of us probably haven't. Uh, I was involved in one of these metal-on-metal -metal devices, not the one that has failed badly, 
I am a member of Devant and I have told Devant about it. We've got all the records there in case something does happen. Um, you know, who knows? But basically, perception and reality are very different. The perception might be that there's an issue, but out there in reality, there's not. Thank you. I'd like to actually ask Eleanor. Eleanor, in terms of what you're teaching students, are you teaching them perceptions or realities, or what are you trying to do here to help for the future? How long have you got? <laughs> Two minutes. Okay. <laughs> Initially. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, like, I guess I'm not going to answer that question, but, but what I... Are you a politician? <laughs> <laughs> no, if I was a politician, I wouldn't tell you I wasn't not going to answer it. I just wouldn't answer it. <laughs> and I would answer what I want to answer. Um, and I think really there's a few things going on here. So I take Helen's point about from the consumer perspective that they wouldn't go to a doctor if they wanted something, what they thought was innovative. And I don't, my perception isn't that doctors don't give innovative or off-grid advice because they're scared of litigation. I think they actually care for their patients and they don't want to give false hope and they don't want to give advice that's not evidence-based. So I think that's where doctors are coming from. And there's also an, an impetus coming from the consumer that when you're desperate, you're really willing to listen to anything and you're highly vulnerable and highly exploitable. Yep. Thank you. Um, Claire, what's your, you, you're at the front line there. You're getting the doctors ringing you up. What, what's, what's your um, take on all this? Um, so what we find when we speak to doctors who are involved in both civil claims and doctors who are in disciplinary claims, that the, the disciplinary process scares them a lot more and the, the potential for that is more frightening to them, more concerning to them than it is to be involved in a civil claim. And I think the reason for that is doctors have their um, professional indemnity insurance. Um, no one likes to be questioned, no one likes to have their conduct that might have been you know, in the middle of the night in a very short time frame with limited, limited information, scrutinised with the benefit of hindsight, you know, and have multiple experts pass comment on it. No one likes that, but it happens. And so I think the concept is that if they have to draw on their professional indemnity insurance for the purpose of defending a civil claim, then they have that there and ultimately that will be managed in some way whether they like the outcome of that or not. In a disciplinary process, it potentially might affect their ability to practice in the profession. And so you still have all those stresses and concerns about being scrutinised, but it also might affect their ability to practice... This distinction or tension between perceptions and reality. You know, people are in front of a disciplinary process. It's not because they don't care. Um, they really genuinely do care, but, you know, it's potentially stopping them from earning a living, you know, as well as scrutinising. Good Samaritan treatment are going to get sued, and therefore you shouldn't. And in fact, I don't know, maybe Cameron's probably got the up to front line mm. person. What's your... What have you observed, if anything, about complaints or things that come to you which may raise some issue of innovation or experimentation or departures from standard treatment? Look, I have to say I agree with David's comment that there are very few that actually we see relate to innovation. So there, there are a few, not many recently, but have been... Innovation. And I just want to kick this off myself before I hand it over to the panel. Innovation, um, in terms of innovation and what we're talking about here, there are very few that we see. Thank you. Now, Catherine, of course, you, you're external. You, the ones that have blown up and which Claire hasn't solved or where <laughs> she wants some help, she comes to you, they might come to you or something like that. What's your take I on that? I, I can't think of any matters I've had that have involved innovation. And this is their last annual report for the 2016, 2015, 16 year now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, thank you, yes. 20, 30 years on tomorrow is the anniversary of my admission, so yes, I am that old. Um, uh, oh, thank you. I wasn't giving away a secret. This, you said that's what you had in your own book. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, in this area, 20, close enough to 20, yeah, yeah. full time. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, the other thing I wanted to comment on, just raise uh, uh, following on from Claire, is that the other thing about disciplinary action and doctors now since the national law is that the, um, there is a public register for health practitioners. So you can look up uh, any of those 14 um, uh, professions that are referred to in the national law, including doctors, you just get onto the APRA website, check out. Um, their credentials, you see their qualifications, what, what college they're in, uh, when they were, you know, whether or not they are in fact registered, is it, is it out of date? Um, most of them are, of course. Uh, and whether or not, most importantly, are there conditions or, or have they given undertakings? Uh, cautions are not recorded on the public register, but other forms of disciplinary action are. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, well, that's a bit of the background. Now, we now invite each you to contribute to this discussion about this relationship between perceptions and realities. Uh, Wendy first, and then I'll come to you, Cameron, next. Thank you. Wendy? Oh, sorry. Um, where's that thing? Cameron, after that. Is that there was 13 complaints out of that. Although it's very hard to find cases of innovation, um, medical legal cases, I mean, the, the, the ones come up that have actually gone really, really badly that end up in court, so they're the ones we found out about. But talking about this... And, mate, this is, there is, and it's already been... There's a filtering process. So, so you have 12,000, close to 12,000... ...theatre, happens in theatre, um, you know. Uh, and so the reason you can't find it is because the patient doesn't know. If, if, they, if there hasn't been a good process, if, it's, if the surgeon saw you know, an anterior approach instead of a posterior approach and decided to try it and it went horribly wrong. There's, you know, unless the patient's lawyers or whatever, unless the family asked the right questions, you're just not going to know there was innovation. So that was one point. And the other point was that talking to surgeons and sort of saying, well, what, what, what makes you innovate? Has already been up, upset. But I think when we're looking at this issue now of fears and perceptions... Not negligence, the discipline, as, as you say. So even though they don't, they happen very rarely for innovation, a lot of surgeons said to us, you know, I wouldn't try that because of, um, because of um, the fear of, of disciplinary procedure because it would be out of line with, with what other peers expect. Yeah. So those are the two things yeah. from talking with surgeons. What we call the deterrent effect of the law. <laughs> All right, um, Cameron, I'll just get that up to you. Thanks, Philip. My, um, my question, my, I'm quite happy for it to be left on the table, but it's a lawyer's question. Um, and it, and it might be resolved by some of the talks we're having later. But the Civil Liability Act regime that we have now, at least since 2001, provided a defence for all professionals as long as they comply with competent professional practice. But that, that defence is only available when it's widely accepted in Australia. So you have to show that there's been a wide acceptance in Australia. And I wonder whether um, uh, that issue of things being widely accepted means that if you were doing something innovative you couldn't rely upon the defence. So I wondered if any of yeah. what, what, what I want to do here that. is I'm going to ask um, Catherine Clare but first I might ask Bill who's sitting next to you for his take on this. Bill Madden. <laughs> Sorry um, to put you on the spot Bill but you were there and you... No no that's alright. <laughs> um, like, 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 like all good... <laughs> 
it's not a, I was writing Cameron's question down. It's like all good questions, there's actually you know, two different versions of the answer. The widely accepted defence, although it was introduced in 2002, doesn't seem to have ever actually been used as a sort of separate um, defence on its own. So there, as far as I'm aware, there has never been a case where the court has said, this doctor has been negligent, but what they have done has been widely accepted as competent practice. So it's one of those sort of law reform things which but, but, doesn't seem to have served a purpose yet. But just interpolating that, but wouldn't yeah. the report then say it was, even it was widely accepted, it was irrational and therefore get around it that way? Well, yeah, and that's the third level, but I'm, yeah, I'm just okay. conscious of the fact that we need the Venn diagram again with the three sort of circles, but yeah. it's one of those defences that doesn't seem to have been used. The, the legislation in New South Wales, at least, does try and make it clear that something um, doesn't have to be universally accepted to be widely accepted, so there is that sort of possibility. Um, but certainly, I mean, Cameron tried. If you, if you got to that point and there was a case like that, mm. it could be a relevant consideration. The only examples I've thought of recently or I've seen talked about recently are in the sort of sports physician area where you see you know, a, an ordinary doctor may not recommend that you go out and play football for another 12 months with your bad knee because your knee will fall off, your leg will fall off. But in the sports physician area, there seems to be a sort of separate rule for those um, elite athletes who go ahead and do things or have forms of treatment just to keep them going for a bit longer. And that might be an area where you could run a widely accepted um, defence for what otherwise would be considered inappropriate or innovative treatment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so that lady at the back. Sorry, no, we're going to get the microphone to you. Hold on. I'll give you the microphone. This is my new job. I'll be a microphone <laughs> distributor. I just have a question in relation to that. Will the uh, widely used... So speak of up loud. That's better. Thank you. Just a question to that. Yeah. Will the use of off-label medication be an example of that, which is widely used? especially by specialists in terms of comparing specialists versus GP practice. And one example actually is in geriatric, with psychotropic medication is used off-label for behavior control. Thank you. Well, that would fit in with Wendy's example of a different indication, wouldn't it, an off-label use, in terms of her definitions. Sorry, any next person? Can um, I just make one, one comment yes, yes. that has occurred to me when you're talking about in, you know, the number of years of experience not seeing, etc. One thing I have observed in the 20 years I've been in this area is that when I started off in my practice, it was all medical negligence claims. In, and, and in that, now my practice has basically um, evolved into predominantly disciplinary regulatory matters. And I think that is a very wide experience for health law practitioners because there are just so many more avenues now for, com for complaint processes. That's interesting. Mm. Mm. Anyone else want to comment on this? Oh, yes, sorry, this lady here. Can we get that microphone back? Here it is. We'll use this one. Thanks. I'm Jo Montgomery, and I work at Avant as a, a risk advisor. <coughs> but in a former life, I did prosecute complaints at the HCCC in New South Wales. And one of the things that I observed that the greatest area of innovation and where doctors really got into trouble wasn't really within the mainstream college practice and what happens in hospitals, but it was the, the GPs out there getting into alternate models of care. As you were saying, um, 
rather than go to an alternative health practitioner, they would go to a general practitioner which lent it. Uh, and what Eleanor said was that they actually really care. So a lot of the time when they did prosecute a couple of matters around um, wellness practice and the prescribing of human growth hormone for wellness reasons. And also I see often in the cosmetic, uh, the general practice uh, working and, and judging their work. So I think they do find it stressful. And also in terms of you as a sort of the that's very helpful. Thank you. I've got now, one other comment. Yes. So, and, and just following on from your comment, um, that seems to be a, a particular area of vulnerability for yeah. practitioners because if they're off there just doing their own thing, running their own little experiment with their patient group of 10, you know, they're acting out. Um, complementary medicine that has, you know, been way out of left field, but I think that's different from... And, and there, there would be avenues for them to set up, like if that's their question, there are avenues for them to set that up and design a study properly and get the numbers and the power and get lots of people behind them so that they've got evidence for the innovation rather than just my anecdotal experience of my 10 patients. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for what, 25 years or there something? There might be a couple of boundary violations yeah. where they think they're being innovative, but it's not <laughs> the truth. Now moving into, was it a scout? this concept of innovation versus patient safety. And one of the ideas which I'm going to ask the panel to address specifically is this notion of evidence-based medicine. Is, is evidence-based medicine in fact a conservative thing which stops innovation or has it got a more um, progressive role? I'd like you to ask you initially, Dr Morgan, to talk about that. Thanks, Philip. Uh, evidence-based medicine is a phrase. It's a catchphrase and it's become very common in the last decade or so. Every college uh, aspires to it. Uh, doctors talk about it. They wallow in the glory of it all. And it really is uh, moderately to severely misleading. Evidence comes in all sorts of forms. Uh, some is exceedingly credible and some is incredible. I refer, of course, to homeopathy. You know, with homeopathy, it's to do with the molecules in water that the body recognises. And the fewer molecules in the water, the greater the recognition. In fact, the most expensive homeopathic solution has a concentration equivalent to one molecule in the whole of Lake Ontario. Yet they say that they have some evidence that it works. Other evidence, of course, is that if you shoot somebody through the head, they'll die, and there's very good evidence that that's probably true. So, yep. Look, I just wanted to add a couple of things from our research, and, and the first is that... Uh, ...degrees of uh, satisfaction, provide satisfaction. It's open to interpretation by the reader, the interpreter, and it's often not transmitted appropriately to the patient, and therefore the consenting process is also poor. So evidence-based medicine... Is I think it's often because the patient's got no way of knowing if there was an innovation. You know, what happens? So I think it's a great issue that we should take uh, some care with. Um, Helen, would you, what's your take on evidence-based medicine and, and from the consumer perspective and this idea of innovation? Yeah, I really take David's point that it can give a consumer false hope. And, and the, the thing that springs to mind for me is this whole debate about caesareans versus natural. Or not innovate or stay on the straight and narrow. They are terrified of disciplinary proceedings. It's an incredible conundrum to me because there's so much personal preference built in as well that I think evidence, you know, where does that say 
sit in the whole scheme of things. I, I meet consumers who will tell me flatly they're not going to risk a, a natural birth, they will have a, a caesarean regardless of what their doctor says and then you come across doctors who, who have strong preferences and beliefs either way as well. Uh, Eleanor, would you, what's your, what's, how does evidence-based medicine fit into the sort of teaching process now with the new doctors in terms of innovation, standards well, and so on? Well, it clearly features very strongly and it, it features in the way that David has described it by saying, you know, there are different types of evidence and there's a range of, you know, worth of, of evidence. There's also an acknowledgement um, that what we call evidence is prefigured by the tools that we have to measure and collect the data. So just because we haven't been able to count it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So that's that back to that whole Einstein, you can't count, like everything that counts can't be counted and everything that can be counted doesn't count. So there's all of that in the mix and that's true. But I think that there's another thing going on there that we should recognise and that is that we live in a, a culture where we're being conditioned to believe that science is going to cure death and um, that opens us up to wanting to believe in innovation. <laughs> Thank you. And the next question I'd like to, I'd like to both get both Catherine's perspective and Claire, and then sort of link it also back to Cameron's question and Bill's comment. Um, in terms of, the sort of that standard widely accepted, which is used in the Civil Liability Act in terms of, have you had any thoughts or views where, how this concept of evidence-based concept of whether you have a defence under the civil liability um, In terms of how that practically plays out, yeah, that's um, yes. most of the time what parties will do if it's a civil claim, for example, is, is in that example, is if you can get an expert opinion that says in peer professional opinion, you know, this is the widely um, accepted way of doing this. But that's one person commenting on their circle and, and there are many ways to, to do things. And so even though you might be able to rely on that evidence to get that defence um, or rely on that evidence to continue with a claim if your opinion is the opposite, the expert opinion is the opposite, it doesn't really actually address the question of, you know, really if you look at what is the widely accepted opinion. Um, so because there's always more than one school or generally more than one school of thought in, you know, multiple things. Catherine, do you want to add anything? Um, practically, my experience is that it hasn't made an enormous amount of difference, mm. um, those defences. You see them being pleaded, um, but you still sort of, you know, uh, rock on as you, as you normally mm. would. The other thing I might comment on, on the expert opinion issue is that at the end of the day, again, um, once you go into a courtroom, it's the judge that makes the decision, not the experts. Mm. The courts are guided by the experts. Mm. Uh, so we probably don't see a lot of um, results from that because more often than not, the parties will resolve yeah. the matter between themselves. Thanks, now, in the last section of this round table before we have our morning tea, I want to move to one further uh, aspect, which is this. We've, uh, so far, our discussion has been largely talking about responses of, in, of regulators and practitioners, but I want to now focus more for the rest of the last few minutes on what role do uh, our, basically our hospital boards and so on have in, in, in this area. Now, um, it's already been mentioned by Wendy that very few of these matters ever get to a, an ethics committee. We know from that at the ground level things are happening. So I'd just like to 
we turn the panel's attention now to what's the role of, say, the hospital board or maybe the colleges as a sort of overarching body in trying to actually improve this balance between innovation and patient safety. Um, I might start off with you, David. Terribly vexed issue, this one. Uh, theoretically, the colleges are in the proper position to train specialists such that they are appropriately professional in their duty, and most of them do. The problem is, of course, that we will always have strays, won't we? We'll always have the bad egg, the bad apple, and the colleges are very poorly equipped to deal with that bad apple. The colleges are conflicted. The colleges are getting paid two or $3,000 by every bad apple. The college doesn't want to bring discredit upon themselves having their fellow on the front page of the paper. So the colleges are actually very poorly equipped to ensure that standards are maintained. The medical board, uh, the medical boards, the national board and the state boards are better equipped, although are encumbered with slow investigative processes and lack of advice and that sort of thing. We really need a third body, an overarching body, that can ensure that the higher standards are truly being met and that there should be some appropriate punitive response if they're not. It's a difficult uh, thing to get through, obviously. Innovation does occur, as Wendy said. In the operating theatre, I remember when I was just doing total knees uh, some time ago, normally I'd use a saw just to cut through the upper end of the shin bone, a straight cut. But the An air of credibility, and I think even made the consumer more vulnerable. So ...shop with a mate on the weekend. We designed a stem that went inside the shin bone with a drill, twist drill, that went at high speed sideways and we could swing it round backwards and forwards. And we could get a really flat cut, but the bone wasn't quite as fresh as it was with the saw that used to wander a bit. In the cosmetic space we're seeing quite a lot of innovation that certainly isn't evidence-based. Now, if I change a knee replacement, so I'm using a type of device and it's a lot of 130 steps to do a knee replacement, if I'm going to change to a new brand, that's almost like changing your wife. It's a very difficult thing to do. So I've got to read about it and go and <laughs> practice it and all that sort of stuff. Now I do tell my patient that the first eight or ten of you may get a... ...side of practice, but they're not actually contributing to the building of an evidence base. Um, the new need? Do you really want the innovation? Or do I bury it in the sand and just uh, say, trust me, I'm a doctor, as Wendy's finding some of our mates do. So it is a very difficult issue to answer the question. The colleges can't do it. We do need an independent overarching body. Uh, thank you. Helen, what's your view about this issue? Look, I think one of the things that's happening, I don't have a definitive answer, but consumers are sitting alongside practitioners. Now, we, want, we now need to move into the next sort of area. And, uh, and what we... Co-design, where consumers are actually involved right from the beginning in planning clinical guidelines and things like that. It's not because they're clinical experts, it's because they have an opinion. And I think that helps. Right, thanks. Now, um, Claire and Catherine, from your perceptions, do you think there is a role for increased institutional involved governance of this area or not? What's your view on this? Um, I'm not sure that we need a, another. We've already got a co-regulatory system in Queensland. I'm not sure that I, um, I think we need another one. Um, I do think we need more resources to the ones that currently exist so that they can do the job that they want to do um, and they can do it well and they can do it quicker, f you know, for all concerned. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. And Eleanor, what's, uh, what, in terms of uh, the, the new doctors being taught, how does, what's your, um, what are they taught about this and what do you think should be done? 
Well, look, I just want to pick up on David's point that you think that the colleges are in a difficult position when they're trying to address that. And I suppose from someone who sits outside of a college, I'm not a medical practitioner, and I really don't understand why the colleges aren't taking the power that they have in this, because as you correctly identified before, we're talking about a very, very small percentage of fellows, and why wouldn't we as a, a professional group? There are two poles. The problem is, of course, that evidence is uh, of very years, And I also think that the colleges could play a very important role in actually taking, not taking carriage of innovations, but providing some sort of network where you could say, if you're an orthopaedic surgeon, I've got this innovative idea, let's run it past the college. laudable and should be applauded, but is often not being uh, followed very carefully. Support each other as professional peers. So I think the college has a massive role to play. Mm. Could I explain? Yeah, yeah. Could I do agree completely? Yeah. I was talking about the stray, the yes. one that is working outside the college guidelines, and we do have a few. Earth. And I think there'd be massive amounts of evidence on both sides. And it the fear of a suit. Uh, so the, the named colleague who is being viewed as a, a marginal operator uh, is usually well advised legally as well and they do sue the colleges and it is a real impediment to the college to stand up and be counted. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because that actually, that requires true leadership, doesn't it, to, to take the mm. onus. Mm. Now, we are really on time, but we'll just take a couple of questions from the audience and then we'll finish. Uh, Cameron first, yes? something that they could lead in by, by taking leadership in, in issues of innovation. But the other thing I think we need to note too is that all health professionals have mandatory notification requirements that if they see people departing significantly from acceptable standards that they're, they've got a dob. So there's dobbing as well. I think we need to take into account the dobbing. It's called notification. Man mandatory notification, yeah. But I think dobbing actually sums it up. <laughs> Phil, can I just say, Cameron, you're absolutely right, but dobbing doesn't happen very often, you know? Well, I think we've got the figures to suggest it does. I mean, oh. there's, a, there's a lot of mandatory notifications now. I think it's well over, was it 10,000 or something like that a year? That's quite a well, lot. Well, Eleanor, actually, well, you, were, you, you, you were chair or our chair of the notification committee, aren't you? What's your um, view on that? Yeah, um, I don't have the numbers A saying I didn't have the numbers off the top of my head, but a large proportion of notifications are about practitioners by other practitioners. Yeah. And, and actually there's data as well that those notifications are more likely to end in a disciplinary action. Are they many border disputes like, you know, where oral surgeons don't necessarily like certain, like say, um, other, say other sort of surgeons or things of that sort? Look, look I, I think that there's, you know, there's a bit of scuttle, but that, you know, all notifications are vexatious. But my experience is that very, very few are actually vexatious. And I can understand that if you've had a notification made against you, mm. you would like to think it was vexatious. But my experience sitting on the medical board now for four years is I really can only think of, you know, maybe one or two that were truly vexatious. Mm. Later at the back and then we'll have to take our break. Just up the back there. Thanks. Cameron, if you've got that, yep. it would be great to give it to the lady. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's Fiona Benwell. I work in the hospital health service as a lawyer. 
Um, and just taking up that point, the health service does have mandatory reporting obligations um, when some of these practitioners don't um, reach the, you know, the level that they should be reaching. And some of those examples are intoxication. Um, if, if the practitioner's drunk or there's um, issues like that detected, we do have to report. Thank you. Oh, all right, really last one. This is really and true, the last one. Okay. That one, just this gentleman here. And then we'll have to round off. Thanks for indulging me. My name is Dan Mathias. I'm from the Office of the Health Ombudsman, um, Executive Director of the Legal Unit there. Um, just on the, the point of mandatory notifications, um, you know, I would, I would uh, you know, second the view that it's very rare to see vexatious notifications, practitioner against practitioner. Um, certainly if it was apparent that it was vexatious, it would be weeded out very early on, I think. Um, and just secondly, the, the, um, the comment about uh, dobbing, um, just to pick up on what uh, Professor Milligan said earlier on, um, ultimately it is about public health and safety. Um, and if by you know, dobbing or giving a mandatory notification, um, that practitioner has, um, has helped to preserve the public health and safety, then it's definitely worth doing. Um, certainly from our point of view, there are a lot of matters that would only ever come to light because a practitioner had the courage to stand up and be heard. Um, and, and, you know, we read the newspapers and we hear about various cultures across the colleges and it's very difficult sometimes to stand up. Um, so, you know, whether we're going to use terms like notification, you know, or, or dobbing, certainly dobbing has a, a very strong connotation. Um, from our point of view, um, a lot of the notifications are helpful because matters just would not come to our attention without them. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been a great session, and some of these issues will be returned to in individual presentations later in the day or questions there. I want to thank all the panellists for their role. I want to thank you, all of you, for being here and really contributing to this session, and I want to thank Tina for coming up with the idea. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you.